uh, we are doing, uh, it's based on Babylon. And so uh, we thought as we were kind of thinking about that, that perhaps a good way uh, for us to kind of in- be included as a part of that is, is to look at Daniel. And so um, we're not going to start it this Sunday, but very soon, here in a couple weeks, we will begin our look uh, at the book of Daniel. And um, Daniel, that takes place in kind of when, when, the, when God's people were taken to Babylon and exile. And so, uh, so I'm looking forward to that, uh, to that series. But today... Uh, we're going to be looking. Uh, don't put it up yet. Don't put it up yet. We're going to be looking. No, 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 no. Don't look. Don't look. Perfect. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage from 2 Kings 7. Now, I want to give you a bit of a preface to this so that you know what's happening, uh, which is uh, that the king of Aramea, which is kind of modern-day Syria, uh, was laying siege to the city of Samaria. And there was a ton of hunger that was going on in Samaria. And so the prophet Elisha uh, was hearing some complaints, understandably, from the people and from the king of Israel. And so Elisha said, don't worry about it. Basically, in like 24 hours, there was going to be an abundance of food. And of course, nobody believed him. Because why in the world should that happen? And so with that then... That's where we come on to this scene in 2 Kings chapter 7, beginning with verse 3. Hear these words. Now there were four leprous men outside the city gate who said to one another, Why should we sit here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we shall also die. Therefore, let us desert to the Aramean camp, and if they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp, but when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, The king of Israel has hired the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was, and fled for their lives." When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, ate and drank, carried off silver, gold, and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back, entered another tent, carried off things from it, and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, what we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We went to the Aramean camp, but there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied, the donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and proclaimed it to the king's household. The king got up in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Aramaeans have prepared against us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, let someone take five of the remaining horses, since those left here will suffer the fate of the whole multitude of Israel that have perished already. Let us send and find out. 
So they took two mounted men, and the king sent them after the Aramean army, saying, Go and find out. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. The whole way was littered with garments and equipment that the, that the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a measure of choice, choice meal was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we give you praise for this glorious day, this glorious occasion to come together in order to worship you and to hear of your good news. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak through this ancient story. and May it bring hope and joy, and may it challenge us in this very day. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So I knew that this week we'd be commissioning many of our folks to go out across the globe. And so I was kind of wrestling with, uh, since I had some flexibility, well, what should I preach on? Let me preach on something that talks about how we are a sent people, sent to go out. And of course, there's a lot of scripture that talks about that. And so as I was kind of thinking through in my little Rolodex there in my head, I was, all of a sudden I was reminded of this very kind of unique and almost strange passage in 2 Kings. Now I've been a pastor uh, for a little over 13 years now and I have only preached on this particular passage once before and I wonder who knows where I preached that particular passage. Glad you asked. Nobody seems to know. I preached it here. Thanks for remembering. I preached it here, but I preached it before I was ever your pastor. Because I preached this in October of 2013 when I came here to candidate for ZPC in order to become your next pastor. Yeah, some of you are like, oh yeah, I remember that, right Todd? Yeah, you were just about to say that. The candidating sermon is this kind of nerve-wracking sermon for a pastor, right? Where he or she, they come up before for our folks, several hundred people. It's basically like an interview, right? And so you, you preach, and then right after that, you get kind of hustled off into a, a closed room where you can't hear anything. You put headphones over your ears. Not really, but something like that. And then they vote on you, right? As to whether or not, basically, you know, you're good enough to come and be the pastor. It's a very nerve-wracking experience. Now, I was somewhat settled, my insecurities and my fears, by the fact that someone told me, some of my colleagues actually said, you know what, when they vote, they're not really voting on you or the sermon. They're really voting. The question is, do they like and do they trust the committee that brought you in, right? So for those few who didn't vote for me, I decided that's because they don't like Judy Barnes and Kurt Stree. The committee that brought me in has nothing to do with me at all. So I began to kind of think then about this particular passage. It is a quirky passage. My guess is that most of us probably are not that familiar, other than those of you who heard and relished every word that I preached in October of 2013. But the rest of you, you probably aren't familiar with this particular passage. And, and as I began to think about that, though, I just kept thinking more. I got kind of nostalgic. I'm kind of a sentimental guy, really. And I started thinking back about these last few years. It hasn't been that many years, but almost five years now since I preached that particular sermon. And it, it feels like a whole other world in many ways, right? When we uh, first 
first came here, we had three children. Uh, none of them had even started school yet. I was in my 30s. Uh, and now, you know, we have four children. Uh, three of them, starting in August, will be in school. And I'm, I mean, I'm still in my 30s or so. And so... Everything, though, is different. I mean, our family seems very different. And then I, I was thinking about my time here and, and, and just how much, honestly, how much of a joy it has been to be here. It's been stretching. There have been challenging times. It's been rewarding. Um, we've had some great joys. We've seen people come in. It's been fun. We've seen some people leave, and that's been sad. And, and we, but we've also, you know, I have experienced some of the real highs of ministry and some of the real lows of ministry. You know, we've had, we had, we had three people who, who were much too young who have passed away and I've had to we've kind of grieved together as a community and struggling with that but 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 I also had this great sense of of the community and our being on this journey together and as as we've been talking about this as elders in the session and there's a sense of you know okay this is going well and what's next there's always that question of what's next which I think is the right question and I I love that I'm very excited I'm excited about the property master plan I'm excited about Ely at our next gen position there are some other things that we've been kind of wrestling with that that will roll out here before long. There are some great things that are happening. It feels to me, the Spirit seems to be saying, as we look forward. But I always think that one of the important things to do as you look forward is to not forget to look back from time to time. Not, not wishing that things could go back to the way they were, but as a way of remembering who you are, who you were from the very beginning, so that you can make sure that you are building off of that as you move forward. And I think that this particular story does a great job of giving us a, a tool, an instrument to do that. Because it really is this great story. There you are, you have these four lepers, and they are in a pickle. A, they have leprosy. B, they're starving. And C, they have an army that's not that far away from them that wants to kill them. Right? This is not a good place to be. And so they're sitting there, and they're trying to think through their options. What can we do? And so one option, perhaps, is, well, maybe we can just go. Maybe we can protect ourselves by going behind the city gates, right? Now, there's some question as to whether or not they would even be allowed to go back there because they were lepers. But as they point out, well, what would be the point? There's no food there anyways. If you read chapter 6 in the beginning uh, part of chapter 7, and I wouldn't do it unless you really want to, but it's some pretty sad things that are happening when people are starving, some of the things that they're having to do. And, and so they said, well, we could go behind the city walls maybe, but even then they don't have any food. Or they thought, well, maybe we could just stay here. But the reality, of course, is that if you just stay there, I mean, there's not that many people coming back and forth. And even if there was, it's not like they're coming with like a grocery cart from Kroger. There's, they're not, they don't have any food either, so that's not going to be helpful. And then they say, well, wait. The only option, maybe the only thing, the only way we can have any hope, as ridiculous and impractical as it may sound, is if we decide to just go walk into the enemy camp. And maybe, you know what, maybe they'll give us some food. Or maybe they'll kill us. But if so, so be it. Because to be a leper and to be starving is no life anyways. And so they decide, okay, well, let's do this. So they begin to walk into the enemy camp. And can't you just kind of picture this almost comedic scene where they, they have these white flags and they're like, hey, we surrender. We surrender. We surrender. Hello? And there's nobody there. In fact, the only thing that's there is food 
food and gold and food and silver and food and clothing and food and horses and food and ponies and food. I mean, can you imagine how excited they would be? I tried to find the right movie clip. I couldn't really find the right movie clip. But it feels to me kind of like Lord of the Rings, right? Where they're just like, they'd be clicking their chalices together. And one person would grab a big old turkey wing or something or leg and grab one bite and then throw it aside. And before you know it, they'd be taking mashed potatoes and gravy and throwing it at one another. And, and they'd be just sitting there thinking, this is amazing. And they're just living the absolute dream. And, and they start going and they start hiding things, right? The silver and gold and the clothes, and they, they come back in. I mean, this is amazing. And then, my guess is it was one of them that kind of stopped amidst their kind of gluttonous stupor and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. something isn't right. This is a day of good news. And there is a whole city of people that we know who are starving right now. And they have no idea that we are reaping of the good news of this food and drink and silver and gold and clothing. And they said, we better go tell them. And sure enough, they run back and they tell the people. And of course, they don't believe them, right? They, 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 they tell the people at the gate who go and tell the king's household, who tell the king's servant, who then goes and tells the king. And of course, the king doesn't believe them. Why would you believe them? But, but finally, they convince the king, well, you know what? We have nothing else to do. Take the last of the five horses or so. Let's go see. And sure enough, they found it just exactly as the prophet and the lepers had said it would be. What a remarkable story. And in 2013, when I talked about this particular passage, one of the things that I said was, in many ways, the church in America reminds me of those four lepers. I decided to kind of start soft when I came and candidated. I, I said, in many ways, the church in America is very similar in the way that it seems to be sometimes diseased and malnourished and not really flourishing in many ways. Yeah, there are some churches that are doing well, but there are many, perhaps even the majority, who are kind of struggling. 92 or 3 percent of churches, I just heard, that are not keeping up with the growth of, those, of, the, of the society around them. And as I said then, there are many options that the church has. And in fact, many of those options are very similar to what the lepers had. For some, the option is to do this, is to maybe, maybe let's, let's go behind the walls. Let's kind of separate ourselves from the culture that is around us. Let's protect ourselves. And maybe in so doing, all of a sudden, we will be given new health and new life. And so that's exactly what they do. And they think that by building these walls in between themselves and the world around them, that that's going to really be their hope. But here's what happens. When you get behind a big wall for safety, I'll, I'll tell you what occurs which is that you begin to look around the other people that are behind the wall and you start not liking them very much and you start finding reasons why you don't like who they are. And so do you know what you then do? You build another wall in between yourself and them. And then you build another wall and then you build another wall and before you know it, all you've done is just sped up your demise. 
Other churches, though, have said, hey, you know what? Here's what we should do. We should just stay right here, but let's try to do something that is more interesting that may then get more people to come by, right? Maybe like the lepers, they thought, hey, maybe if we started juggling, maybe then people would come by. And so oftentimes church will say, oh, okay, well, let's do this one thing. Maybe, maybe let's, let's do something that is a bit more entertaining, a bit more exciting. And then in that way, that's how all of a sudden we're going to have new life. And all of a sudden we're going to begin to grow. In fact, what I said then was, perhaps, you know, perhaps even you think, well, hey, let's bring in a pastor who's somewhat younger and who has three little kids. And maybe by so doing, all of a sudden, everything's going to be changing. We're all, it's, it's just going to be great. But what most churches have discovered is that that's not the way to health either. That's not the way to new life. And what the churches, it seems to me, who have been able to flourish in this day and age are those churches who, much like the foolish lepers on that day, have said, we are going to go in and we are going to start taking risks into the world that surrounds us, right? And it doesn't even mean they had this great developed five-year plan. They didn't have any kind of five-year plan. There was no mention of, all right, here's what you do. Jimmy, you're going to go north. Sammy, you're going to go south. Uh, Smitty, you go east. And Bartholomew, you go west. And, 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 And Jim, you just start yelling over there on your side and so you distract them and then we'll go in and get the fried chicken and mashed potatoes and then we'll rendezvous back at the city gates no they had no great plan they just said let's just go and see what happens let's just take a risk and who knows if it's going to succeed or not and sure enough they went out and they began to take that risk and as a part of that new life occurred And one of the things it seems to me that is abundantly clear when it comes to Scripture and what the church is called to do is to be a place that is not afraid to go out and to boldly take risks even if they may fail. And one of the things that drew me to ZPC, you know, five years ago as we were in interactions was one of the things, I've told you this before, that Jim Capps, the interim pastor, said to me, which is that ZPC is very much like a new church plant. It has the feel, even though it's been 30 or so years from then, it feels a bit like a new church. And what I loved about that is one of the things that everyone knows is that new churches are inevitably, by their very nature, incredibly risky. They are very much risk takers. It's much like a new business. You all know when you try to start a new business, the the, the probability of it succeeding is abysmal. Right? And the same way with a new church. When you try to plant a new church, the odds of it succeeding, it is not very good. And so the fact that from the very beginning then, there was this sense of a people who said, nope, we're going we're gonna to take a risk. Who knows if it's going to succeed? It could completely fail. And there will be oftentimes probably when it seems like it is going to fail. And yet, as Jim was telling me about this church, I said, well, if this is a place that believes that they can take risk and they want to take risk, well, then let's see what's going to happen. And that's one of the things that I have loved about my last four and a half years here is seeing some of those risks, right? Risks that most of you know about already, right? Like we talk about with the Jeremiah house. Hey, let's do something, you know, for those who are struggling with addiction. We could give money. Okay, that's one thing. We could go serve 30 miles away or 15 miles away, or we could invite them next door and let's see if this works, right? That's a bit of craziness. And quite frankly, we've had a lot of failures. In fact, we've even had discussions of whether or not is this thing even going to work. But I want you to know whether or not the Jeremiah house flourished as we hoped or whether or not it didn't, 
What was most significant is the fact that we were willing to take the chance. Why? Because we believed that in loving and caring for them, we were doing the right thing, whether or not it succeeded or not. Right now, we have three guys there, and so this is one of the greatest places it's been yet, but it has been a process. Or what about a couple years ago now when we decided to have IHN, to have the homeless come in here for two weeks? This year now, we've moved that up to three weeks uh, during the year. One of the great joys, it seems to me, is during that time, now maybe somebody has said something and I've forgotten it, but by and large, I never recall hearing anyone say, hey, you know what, what if, what if, what if they kind of mess the church up? What if, what if things don't look the same? What if somebody takes something? These are outsiders. We don't know them at all. And, 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 and what if kind of the wear and tear is just not good for our church? And one of the things I love about ZPC is that rarely are they ever so concerned with the preservation of this building that they forget the reality that this building is a gift to be used for others, to be used even for those who are not here yet. Right? Between eight and 10,000 people come through here every month. The majority of those are not people who come and worship all the time here. Right? And that's remarkable that ZPC has said we are willing to take the risk. Right? Someone has noticed uh, that our, one of our candles was broken. Well, that's because uh, uh, Noah's Ark came in here at some point. I forget when it was. And, and one of the candles got bumped, and so it broke. Or at least that's what we're telling people. And so. But you know what? What do we say? We are willing to take that. When something gets spilled, when something happens at the food pantry, we are willing to take that. I mean, we do our best, and they do a great job of trying to be as safe as possible, but you just can't be. If you have food, there's going to be something that messes up. But here's the thing. We are willing to risk the building because we know that ultimately it is not about preserving a building. That is not why we are here. Or what about home groups? I know you're saying, oh, home groups. Well, I mean, there's no risk there. I want, I want you to know that when you're one of the leaders, right, and when you're a group of folks as we were and we said, hey, we want to do this, and you have everyone get together in this beautiful barn and you have this big meal of 30 or 40 leaders that are there, and then you have them go through a pilot group for two and a half months, and then in January of whatever year that was, 2015 maybe, you put up these lists, right, and they have no names on them except for the leaders, and you're like, man, this I could look like a moron here if nobody signs up. And it is incredibly nerve-wracking. Anyone who's led anything, you know that, right? It's to take that risk. And yet, because of that, we now have over 300 people who are formed every week when we are doing home groups, who are shaped more like Jesus and who understand that we are a part of this as a community and that what we do in here should be carried out throughout the week. Right, But it only happens when we are willing to take risk. And so one of the things that we're saying this morning is that we have to be a people who are continually wanting to go out and to take risks. Now let us be clear. The reason why we are taking risk is not because it's fun or because we want to grow our brand. The reason why we take risks is because we believe that we have good news to share. And the only way that you can really share that good news is if you are willing to be somewhat risky. 
Right? And remember, what are they, what are, I love what the lepers, they're sitting there, and there they are, man, and they are living. You remember, they still have some mashed potatoes over here. There's still the grease of fried chicken. They've got about 50 different pairs of clothes on. They've got gold chains and, and, and gold rings, and they are living the dream. And they said, this is good news. And all of a sudden, they realized that this was not right, that they could not just sit there and soak in all of that good news, that that good news was never just for them. And so they went to share that good news with others. And a church that is healthy has to have a sense, a passion for sharing that good news. I, I, I love, I don't know how many of you know Pete Hudson. Pete Hudson is a great dear saint of ZPC. He, he, he was kind of there from the very beginning. If there's one person for whom you kind of look back and say, wow, that person was a key person in kind of the birth of ZPC, it would be Pete Hudson. We love Pete Hudson. He, uh, we stayed at his house when we first moved here as a family when he was down in Florida. He has no idea we stayed there, but it was fantastic. And so Pete Hudson was telling me a couple of weeks ago, he was talking to me a little bit about the beginning of the church because Ray Rizzo, who was also a guy who was there who recently passed away, and he said, well, you know what? A group of us got together and we began at the very beginning, back in the early 80s, we went around and we knocked on every fifth door all around Zionsville. And they knocked and they asked him a question, do you go to church? And if they said, yep, they said, hey, that's great, wonderful, thank you for going, and they went on. But if they said no... They began to talk to him about church, and they began to say, well, would you be interested? And if so, what would, that, what would that look like for you? And I love that story. Do you want to know why I love that story? Because I think oftentimes, and I understand it, people will say, well, you know, Jerry, all he ever does is talk about going out and loving your literal neighbors. And that's what Jerry's brought to this church, is just talking about loving your literal neighbors. And what I want to say to you, and what I will continue to say to you, is this is nothing new that I have brought in. ZPC, from its very beginning, was going door to door in neighborhoods, sharing the love of Jesus. They didn't just start at the middle school and put up a sign and say, hey, we hope some people come by because we have some good news. No, no, no. They went door to door in people's neighborhoods. What I'm doing is I'm not bringing something new. I am pointing us back to who ZPC was from its very beginning. A place that said, we believe we have good news, so let's see what the Lord might do here. Or what about Great Banquet? One of the things that I love is the passion with which people invite people into Great Banquet. Now, I love the fact that they are excited to invite people to taste of literal good food as well as spiritual food to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, there are those who will say, and I understand it, oh, will they please, we have kids in here, will they please be quiet when it comes to inviting people to great banquet? And I get it. I think there are times I don't think there's any reason to hide this. There are times when perhaps people who invite others could, you know, leave a little bit of room for the Holy Spirit. Just breathe a little bit. No question. But here's what I also want you to know. A thousand times over, I would prefer to be a part of a church that is so passionate about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to others that they can't stop inviting people to that over a church who sits there like the lepers in the beginning and says, look at all this good news we have and has no desire to share that good news with others. So the next time that you get annoyed with someone asking you yet one more time to come and share the good news, remember this, thank them for 
for the fact that they are never going to be content to just sit there and keep all of that fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy and silver and gold and clothes to themselves. I have been to other churches that have been afraid to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others, and that is no fun. I mean, think about how annoying the lepers would have been. Picture this. Picture 10 years, 15 years after the lepers are there. And there they are. They're sitting around. They've got a great little family. They've got three kids. They're all sitting around at the table. And you know what? There's fried chicken there. And all of a sudden, the leopard dad says, oh, kids, you know what that fried chicken reminds me of? And they, what would they say? Oh, jeez, dad, not again. Oh, it reminds me of when Jimmy and Smitty and me and Bartholomew one day were starving and we went into this enemy camp and we found this fried chicken and all their eyes would roll. Why? Because they had heard about it again and again and again. But there is something that is good and annoying about someone who says we have good news and we have been changed and shaped by it and we cannot stop talking about it. Good God, I will go on. I will, I'm feeling Pentecostal. I will preach for, for hours if I can't get one amen. I thought that would bring it out. That's the way you get Presbyterians to say amen. All right, it's why there is this ever focus, this focus that has always been here about going out and doing world mission, about going out and caring for others across the street or across the globe, wherever it may be. We must continually do that. We must continually be engaged in loving others as a reminder to them of the good news of Jesus Christ and as a reminder to us that we were never called to possess the good news but to share the good news. That's why I love that phraseology that we've been using about being shaped more like Jesus and wanting the community and the world to look more like the kingdom of God, to let them know of the good news. Now, I want to close with just a bit of a sidetrack, but it is important to me. I, I've noticed, that, again, sometimes I don't communicate things as, as well or as often as I would like to. I, I want you to know, because this was brought up a couple of weeks ago, there was a question about worship, and there was a question about our worship space. And some have said, and understandably so, you know, it's a little easier to kind of get worshipful, if you will, if this were completely all blackened out. And if we just had a light and this was all dark and, there's this, and there are churches that do it, and I understand why. This is not an aspersion on them at all. I understand. There is a sense. I felt it when it just feels like it's you and God in that kind of dark place, and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But I want you to know that one of our deepest values here in worship is this. That it is well lit in here and that we have this massive window here. Because what I want you to know, I never want you to compartmentalize, to dichotomize, to separate what we do in here, A, with the people that you can see around us. Because you can't be about the kingdom of God and do it alone, it seems to me. And I want every single thing that we do in here, I never want you to ever think this is just about me. And this is a private faith. At all moments when you are hearing the good news of the gospel, I want you to be asking not just what difference does it make in my life, but what difference does it make in the life of those who are out there. At no moment do I want you worshiping and forgiving. 
forget that this is not just about us. And so all we can do, in fact, I'd love to make the whole thing a window if we could get rid of those birds, which we've, uh, let's not bring up the birds, but, but I would love to make all this because I always want you to keep in mind that we are about taking risk and about sharing the gospel and we will never be content. This church will never find life or hope if it is content with thinking that this is just about me. But oh, the joy. Oh, the joy of being a part of a place and a community where you help others to experience the good news of Jesus' love and grace, of his forgiveness, of his desire that all would have food and drink and a shelter, of his desire that all would know that they are loved by him. Let us always be committed to not being afraid, to being a people of courage, and the people who are committed to making sure that all know of the good news of the gospel. Amen.